Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. All right. Okay, guys, we're going to jump right back into it. I know that was quick. Welcome, Family Sunday. Hey, all kids, kids, let me get all the kids' attention now. If you see mom and dad misbehaving, getting fussy, just hand them a little snack pack, give them a little elbow and say, focus, mom, focus, dad. Okay, kids, can you do that? All right. Great. Well, hey, good morning, guys. My name is Ben Wickle. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, I get the privilege of, of bringing the word this morning. Uh, it's been a very much of a, a roller coaster week for, for the Wickle family. Uh, we, we had a, a mouse in the house episode this week, and the mouse uh, must have felt like it was Christmas because he was leaving presents all over the house. Uh, but we caught that little booger this morning. We did. We had yesterday just an, an, a, a, a sweet time celebrating. Uh, we had a wedding and, and for an incredible young adult uh, couple in our church, which was just wonderful. But there was also some hardship uh, for, for us and our family, our church family. Some of you uh, might have already found this out, but our, uh, our dear friend Jim Benedict uh, passed away. Uh, if you know Jim, he's been a member of our church for about a year and he did the discipleship school last year. And so our, our heart goes out for the Benedict family. Please keep them in your prayers. He was a man of God, a man of faith. And um, yesterday, our, we uh, found out that Julie's grandma passed away. And, but she was also, she was a woman of God. And we are just so thankful for the resurrection are we not? We're thankful that there's hope. Wow. Don't you love church? Don't you love church? Don't you love this morning? I mean, the baptisms, the kingdom of God is present. Just w- watching the, 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 the kids and, and Adam, so proud of you, and, and Aiden, Aiden, so proud of you. It's just, I love, I love Sunday mornings. I love get, being able to be here with you guys. And for the past several weeks, we've been talking about how discipleship is a, is a journey, it's a pilgrimage. And we've looked at how the Old Testament Israelites, in their story very much foreshadows our story. Their deliverance out of Egypt is a, a foreshadowing type of our deliverance. The Passover story is a type and foreshadow of Jesus and his blood being shed. And last week we introduced the idea that the journey, the wilderness, the trials, the temptations, the sufferings of the children of Israel are also a, a type and foreshadow of our own trials and tribulations. And we were posing several questions. How do we as believers, how can we make it for the long haul? How can we finish the race well? How can we keep the faith? We've all have had people in our lives that, who were maybe with us, 
Maybe they were the ones that were instrumental in leading us to the Lord, and now we know that they're, they're not following Jesus, or maybe they're not connected to the church. And we witnessed that, and it's heartbreaking. And Jesus was very clear. Paul was very clear that through, through the kingdom, we, we have to experience trials and tribulations. And we want to talk about how to make it for the long haul. How can we get to the end of our lives and, and not be burned out, but be burning up for Jesus? And we talked about four different trials last week. Just a real quick recap. We talked about the trial of, of progress and pressing through spiritual battles. We talked about the trial of, of corruption, where as a result of our own sin, we can experience hardships. That leads to the trial of correction, where God's discipline comes in. And lastly, we looked at the trial of pruning, how sometimes the difficult circumstances are related to how God wants to produce more fruit. But there was one trial we didn't get to, and I really felt like we, it deserved its own sermon. It, it's what I believe, from my own experience and as a person and as a pastor, is, is probably one of the most difficult trials. It's one that we will all face and it's probably the trial that it amounts for the most people, most Christians, falling away from the faith. And I call that the trial of disappointment or the trial of extreme disillusionment. It's the trial that causes you to doubt God's goodness, maybe even his existence. It leaves you jaded with the church. Maybe you struggle to feel God's presence or hear his voice. It's the trial of disappointment. Now, I'm not talking about disappointment in that you had a, a, a bad grade in science class or you, you didn't get your Christmas bonus. I'm, I'm talking more about the, the conglomeration of events where hardship and disappointment, suffering and brokenness is your story. The trial of disappointment could be due to you praying for years for your mental, emotional, physical health and your prayers aren't getting answered. It's when you walk through a broken relationship, such as a divorce, a betrayal, or even the loss of a loved one. It's when you experience firsthand the hypocrisy of other Christians. Maybe a certain Christian leader you really looked up to once lets you down. Maybe it's when you poured yourself out for years towards a ministry or a cause with no visible fruit or results. Maybe it's the result of Multiple failed career ventures that have left you unfulfilled. Perhaps it's the witness of extreme injustice in your life or the lives of others where you just see pain and suffering. Some of you are in that trial right now. Others of you have, you're here now, but you're carrying the, the woundings, the spiritual limp of those trials and maybe you're here this morning and you, you can't attest to that, but as Jesus tells us, as Paul warns us, those trials will come. So how do we make it through the trial of disillusionment? How do we make it through our greatest disappointments? Thankfully, we can go to Jesus. And that's my heart and prayer this morning, is that Jesus, his life and his ministry would be so glorified this morning, that you wouldn't be drawn to me, you wouldn't be drawn to my words, but that you would just see Jesus. One story in particular, we're going to turn to John chapter 11. Jesus faces the root of all suffering. He faces it head on, and he's able to provide ministry to two grieving sisters in the midst of a severe suffering and disappointment. 
We're going to turn to John chapter 11, and we're going to look at how Jesus ministers to us. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read through the chapter, and at time, pause and make some comments, but we're going to let him minister to us through his word. Verses 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now who were these folks? Were they strangers? No, they were dear friends to Jesus. And what was their expectation? They've been, they know Jesus. They know he can heal people. They know he can deliver people. What were they hoping for? They were hoping that Jesus, the miracle worker, the healer, would bring healing. And what we'll see in just a second is really the root of disappointment and disillusionment is, the, is, is unmet expectations. Verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6. But when Jesus heard that it, Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is interesting. He heard that he was sick, and what did he do? He waited two more days. This had to have been mystifying to his disciples. Even more so, it had to have been grievous for Martha and Mary. But we do get a hint of what's going on here. Jesus is allowing his dearest friends to go through, in this case, hardship and mourning for Lazarus so that they could witness an amazing demonstration of life over death. There's a principle here, and that is when we're in suffering, the Lord's timing is very different than our own. In this moment, we may not understand why the Lord's delay, but as this story will show, his glory is yet to be revealed. Look at verse 7, continuing on. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Skipping down to verse 11 through 15. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. I can see Jesus now just rolling his eyes. (laughs) Boys, come on now. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant... They were ta- he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Verse 17. When Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Four days. That's an interesting detail there that John provided. Four days. There is a, a some scholars believe, a Jewish superstition that up until the four days, there's still a chance, there's still a chance that the soul could reunite with the body and that it, the life could still, the body could still find life. And so at this point, John is telling us, Lazarus is dead. There's no more hope. There's no more chance. Verses 8, 18 through 21. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now look, look at this. This is Martha's first statement. Martha said to Jesus, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can you sense the grief? Can you sense the despair? Can you sense her honest, maybe even presumptuous frustration with the Lord? I love the Psalms. I love all the promises of God being our refuge, our deliverer. But do you know what really what one of the major themes of Psalm is? It's lament. 70% of the book of Psalms is lament. I believe the Lord is not frustrated, he's not, or he's not intimidated when we come to the Lord like Martha and just lay it all down bare. In fact, I believe, I propose to you that he prefers that than when we give him our fake, religious, pious jargon sometimes. He wants us to be real. Martha was real with Jesus. Look at verse 22, though. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. While there's honest frustration, there was an even now prayer. What a beautiful, faithful prayer. Even in the midst of great disappointment, even when she didn't completely understand why, she still claimed trust in God's purposes. Even now, prayers are sweet aromas to Jesus. It's those prayers that we can only offer on this side of eternity. While you're going through disappointment, while I don't understand what's happening in my relationships, I don't understand what's happening in my life, even now, Lord, I trust your goodness. Do you offer to the Lord even now prayers? Verses 23, let's keep going on through 26. Let's look at how Jesus begins to minister to her. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus didn't say, I have resurrection life. He didn't say that I can show you resurrection life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the resurrection and life. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now let me pause here and share one of the ways that Jesus ministers to us in some of our greatest pain, our suffering, our disappointment. Here Jesus is giving us biblical revelation. He's giving us understanding. He's giving revelation. He's expanding Martha's theology. It was, it was right. Martha was right to say that, the, yes, Jesus, the resurrection will come. The Jews, along with Martha, they rightly believed that there is a resurrection from the dead. That's coming. But Jesus expands it and says, yes, that, he's going, yeah, that's true. But what you're hoping in, it's rooted in me. And so one of the ways that Jesus ministers to us is that he wants to give us further biblical understanding and revelation. He wants to minister. He does want to minister to our minds. He does. He wants to enlighten our minds. James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 1, of James chapter 1, 
you, we've talked about this. You, you're probably familiar with that famous verse about like considering it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. This verses two, three, and four. But notice verse five. We can go to James chapter one, verses two. Maybe I did. there we go. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, but now look at the next verse. It's in the context of facing trials that in verse 5, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. In our facing of trials, there's an appropriateness, there's a willingness of Jesus to minister to us and give us further expanded revelation. He's going to expand our understanding of what we're going through. Now, I want to give this morning what are continuing on, on this point, four fundamental truths for a, a theology of suffering. We, we don't talk a lot about suffering in, in our context, in our American context, in the Western context. And I, I, I mentioned this last week, I, I believe, I desire, you should desire the Lord's blessing, his favor, his health, and, and all that prosperity. That's great. But we, 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 we do ourselves a disservice when we don't root ourselves in all the scriptures that talk about suffering. And so we need a, a theological foundation of suffering. So let me give you four foundational, these are theological, these are, you have to have your foundation on these when you're experiencing suffering. Number one, it is actually, it, it begins with that God is good. In Genesis 1 and 2, when God is creating the world, the universe, there is no death. There is no there's pain. There is no sin. There is no suffering. There is no brokenness. God is good, and what he's making is good. Now, you could say, well, how is there evil in the world? Didn't God allow it? God, in his love, by creating humans with the potential to have free, for free will, to have free will, he created the potential for, their, for them to choose evil. You following me here? And that leads to the second foundational truth for suffering. God is good, but secondly, sin and all the brokenness, it's our fault. We ushered that in. All the suffering, all the pain, all the brokenness can be traced back to the curse of sin upon the world, Genesis 3. Yes, we are the victims of sin. We've experienced it, but we're also the perpetrators. We're also complicit in the divine rebellion, the cosmic rebellion against God. It was our sin, our rebellion that ushers and continues to usher in the curse of sin and death in this world. Most of the objections against God because of suffering is based on a presumption, an assumption that people are just inherently good and that we deserve mercy. The Bible teaches the opposite. The entire human race is complicit. In fact, we all deserve death. The fact that there is still goodness in the world, that there's art, there's beauty, there's, that we do have health, and is a sign of God's grace. The fact that we have an opportunity to hear the message of the gospel and respond and repent is grace. I heard another preacher say it. The Bible doesn't wrestle with the problem of evil as much as it marvels at its amazing grace. The Bible doesn't wrestle with the problem of evil as much as it marvels at its amazing grace. 
The third foundational truth that we need when we're suffering is number three, the, co- the cross removes the curse of sin. How do you remove the sinfulness and evil within all of our hearts? The sin that leads to death, disappointment, brokenness, evil in the world. How do we deal with it? How do we break the power of sin? How do we deal with the penalty of our sin? Who is powerful and loving and merciful enough to deal with the transgression and the injustice of sin? There's only one answer. The cosmic, divine, king of kings himself, the pure and spotless, lovely, innocent one who, took, who did no wrong comes and takes our blame, our sin. In exchange for our sin, Jesus gives us the righteousness of himself so we can become justified. The word justified, one way to remember it is, it's just if I had never sinned. The cross of Jesus, his bloodshed, breaks the power of sin. It removes the presence of our sin. And it pays the debt of our sin. And then the healing process can begin. The healing process begins. Last theological truth that we need when we're facing suffering is that the resurrection of Jesus gives life and hope. Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection. It means that even if your story is plagued with disappointment and heartache and brokenness, it means that that your story will not end like that. This is a very practical theological doctrine. The early church that was reading Paul's letters, that read Romans 8, for instance, where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Paul experienced, I didn't have them all up here, but Paul experienced what he calls light and momentary afflictions. But you read through his letters, and you see there was nothing light, in our opinion, there's nothing light about him. Shipwrecks, beaten, deserted, betrayed. He calls it, I'm carrying the sentence of death. In God's grace, he was able to see a revelation of, of heaven that Paul talks about. He got transferred up to heaven. And I think it, it was for the purpose of him to taste. He got a little hint, a shadow of, of heaven and of the glory. And he's writing this and he's going, oh, the injustice. He's, he's writing to a church that's persecuted. He's writing to a church that was for the most part poor living in poverty. A lot of them were slaves in the Roman Empire. And he's going, no matter your disappointment, oh, if you could just see, if you could just know the glory that's coming. I remember the first time I encountered the thought of death. I was five years old. It was Creedmoor Road near Crabtree Valley Mall. And I, a five-year-old was, uh, was, uh, loved police officers. I saw a police officer car driving up. And I said, Mom, what's that? Look at that police car. And then there was a row of cars following the police car. I said, what's going on? My mom said, well, they're going to a, a funeral to bury someone. I'm five years old. First thought of death. And I'm going, what? <laughs> what? What's burying? I actually had the picture of sitting under a berry tree. I'm like, what? 
we didn't even bury it. <laughs> Elaborate, mother. Help me. Help my understanding. And she's like, no, that's when you die. And they put you in the ground. And I don't remember any more of the conversation, but it was the first time. I, I don't know how to describe it, but it was the sting of death passing through my psyche. And it was, it was hopeless, if you can imagine that. And yet, there's the hope of the resurrection. We could sing here. We could sing here, hallelujah. The sting of death has been removed. I've, there's been many people who've, who've, who've... It's been a hard couple years for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. But when you remove the sting of death, the fear of death, and when we can return to just the doctrine of the resurrection, that there's hope. I mean, what's the most disappointing thing in the world? It's death. That there's like this ceasing to exist, but not with Jesus. I'll read one last verse um, as part of this doctrine, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. I love this next part. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The hope of the resurrection was a foundational doctrine for the early church. It needs to be for us today. Verses 28, we're going to continue to look. Jesus, he, he ministers to our mind, but he's going to minister in another way. Just a second. Verse 28, when he, she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. Look at verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had, who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Mary made the same statement as Martha. Did you notice that? What was that statement? Jesus, if you would have been here. Yet notice the different response that Jesus gives to Mary. For Martha, it was expanding her understanding. It was theological. It was increased revelation. For Mary, <clears throat> he was ministering to her heart. He provided a ministry of, of presence. Jesus ministers, he ministers to us by giving us his presence. Was Jesus weeping because he knew Lazarus was going to die and stay dead? I mean, he knew what he was about to do. Why was Jesus weeping? He was weeping because he's, he felt the pain of Mary. That's what Jesus does. He weeps with us. He knows our pain. He gets down at our level. And he just doesn't say it's going to be all right, it's going to be okay. He probably does say that because it's true, but he, said, he's just, he cries with us. I, I, our, our children, when they 
they fall down, they skid their knees. I know it's okay. But when they come with tears in their eyes and their arms open and they're running, what do they want? They just want an embrace. They want a hug. And that's what Jesus is offering for us. Some of you are carrying brokenness. You're carrying the heaviness of disappointment for way too long. And Jesus has made a way for you to run up into Papa's lap. He wants to weep with you. He wants to be with you. Jesus ministers to us in one more powerful way. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen stripes, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. There's a, a textual thing going on here in the Greek. It can easily get lost in our translations. Uh, in verse 38, it says he was deeply moved again. And in verse 33, that's where we saw the first reference. He was deeply moved. He saw Mary's pain. The if you in your English Bible, some of you might have a little footnote there, and, it, and if you, it, it says he was indignant. So Jesus, yes, he was experiencing compassion and sympathy, but there, there was, he was indignant. The literal translation there is that he snorted with anger. He's snort, he's, he's like a fierce animal, getting ready to charge. One scholar put it like this. John Calvin says, as Jesus was preparing, it's not so much that he, he was sympathetic as much as Jesus was preparing to enter a ring like a wrestler preparing for the contest. He groans because the violent tyranny of death which he had to overcome now stands before his eyes. He's yelling out, Lazarus, come out! Now, if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, all the, all the graves would have come out, right? I'm going to go ahead and invite our, our music team up, worship team. Here's the profound irony, though. If we read on to the story, Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus sparks a conversation among the religious leaders who then begin to plot and conspire to his own death. The only way Jesus could stop the funeral of Lazarus was to start his own. 
The only way Jesus could stop the funeral of Lazarus was to begin the events that would start his own funeral. Jesus, he gives us biblical revelation. He gives us his presence. But you know what he does? He backs it up with his life. He goes to a cross and he proves it by conquering death, facing it head on. Talk about love. There's no greater love for this than for someone to lay down his life. That's how much Jesus loves you. And so this morning, I believe the Lord wants to minister to us. If you're carrying either presently or the wounds of disappointment, he wants to give greater understanding. He wants to weep with you. But he also wants to show you that he loves you. I'm going to invite us all to stand. I'm going to have our ministry team come up to the front. And I want to give a a couple invitations this morning. If you have never given your life to Jesus, you've heard about him, maybe you're one of those people that just says, I've been disappointed by God. And you would like to know this wonderful Jesus who loves you dearly, then I'm going to invite you this morning to, to come and pray. It's real simple. You, you recognize your need for a Savior because of your sins. You repent and you turn to Jesus and you put your trust in what he's done on the cross. And you put your trust in his resurrection life. I also want to invite people this morning, if you're carrying disappointment, you're carrying suffering and pain, I want to invite you this morning to come to the front and just receive prayer. Maybe you just need someone just to to give you a hug. And I believe Jesus, he wants to weep with you. He wants to love you in your weakness. Here, you can pray with me and then we'll continue on. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great and wonderful ministry towards us, God. We thank you for the gospel the good news that you took the root of all pain, all brokenness, all disappointment, the curse of sin. You put it on yourself, Jesus, so that we could receive life. We receive your love this morning. We turn to you afresh. We thank you for your great ministry to us, Jesus. So if you need prayer this morning, please come to the front. We're going to continue to worship Jesus.